From CSB Studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Definitely got a very good program planned today. Um, we're going to start out. Hopefully, we'll get a call in a little bit from Pat Mahomes, former Major League pitcher, and then we'll be reaching out to a couple people. We'll be reaching out to Mark Grant, uh, former pitcher for the Padres and the Giants, Bill Gullickson, former pitcher for the Expos, Reds, and Yankees amongst other teams, and then uh, Matt McBride, outfielder for the Colorado Rockies. So definitely a lot of things going on, and let's be honest, man, with everything going on in Major League Baseball, I mean, I don't even know what to do with myself, man. We got uh, we got two hours. I doubt we'll be able to get to everything that I want to hit up on, but we're going to start things out today, and you know, I think if you're a New York Mets fan, you finally got some positive move something in the right direction off season that's been very quiet was really highlighted on david wright's extension and r.a dickey being traded and really nothing else has happened until today where the mets signed free agent pitcher sean markham to a one-year contract and i you gotta absolutely be excited about that if you're a mets fan amongst free agent pitchers he was the best option that was left and honestly i didn't think the mets would end up going that route and end up signing him where I think he could have got a, uh, a two-year deal or even more from another team. So I think the Mets did a very good job there. They had a, you know, at least a number three starter to their rotation, a guy that's going to go out there and give you some innings in addition to the fact that, listen, he, he's, he, he, ha- he has the ability to be even better than he's shown. Here's a guy that's gone out there and dominated at points, particularly with the Milwaukee Brewers a couple of years ago. Prior to that, he had some very good moments with the Toronto Blue Jays. So I think it's a a good move for the New York Mets. They add a starting pitcher, their first major league free agent signing of the entire offseason. They were the last team in Major League Baseball to do so. And I guess the question would be, where do they go from here? And it, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the potential of bringing in Michael Bourne, which I kind of have mixed feelings about, to be honest with you. I'm not 100% um, in favor of it. But I'm also not against it. And I think you're looking at a situation there where I don't think that the Mets would necessarily be doing a bad thing if they end up signing Michael Bourne. But at the same time, obviously, it comes with some uh, some some negative caveats. The fact that the guy relies you know, 100% on his speed. He's on the uh, south side of 40. I'm sorry, the north side of 40. I'm sorry, 30. And... You know, you don't know where he's going to be three, four years down the road. And let's be honest, I mean, Sandy Alderson's dream would probably be to be able to sign him to a one-year contract, and that's not happening. Scott Boris is his agent. Obviously, Boris is going to be in more contact with the Mets as he kind of has the team on the radar as a team that he would uh, want to see Bourne go to. But, listen, I'm not totally against it, but if I'm a Mets fan, and I look at the outfield that the New York Mets have, and I'm sure you've heard enough of me talking about how the Mets do not have a major league outfield. And that all being said, I think you're looking at a situation where this any upgrade is an upgrade. And Michael Bourne is an all-star type player. Yes, he does strike out a lot. 
but he's a guy that's had some success, particularly the first half of last season with Atlanta. He was very good. The Mets don't have a leadoff batter. Like I said, don't have a single outfielder right now. So I think you have to take what you can and to come out, really come out of this offseason with what would be one of the top free agents out there, I think would turn out to be a good move. And some people may disagree with me on it. Some people may say, hey, I don't want anything to do with a guy like Michael Bourne. And you say one year after not signing Jose Reyes as a free agent, you're going to give a multi-year deal to Michael Bourne. Michael Bourne isn't the same player as Jose Reyes. And it's not a, not a fair discussion. So I think those are things that have to be thought about. But let's be honest, the Mets don't have an outfield. I mean, they don't have an outfielder right now. So if they go out there and add anybody, I think you have to. I think you have to say positive, good. I mean, I, and and it's going to get me into you know my discussion, something that I've always talked about about my history of being a Met fan. And one thing you could trace it back to. Around 1986, 1987, and remember at the time, you're talking about a 6- and 7-year-old, somebody that doesn't understand a lot about baseball, and I picked up on the Mets and have been a long, loyal fan since. But one thing that I've always been able to point to is the fact that every year you could spin things in a positive direction where you could say, this team could be good if. And it started, you know, in the 1987 season, the 1991 season, even the, the worst team money could buy in 1992. We all talked about how if things broke right, things could go well here, and this season could be a little better than people think. But I don't see that right now. And that's my biggest issue right now, that, the, you know, an offseason where they've done nothing until today, until the signing of, of Sean Markham, it's been an offseason where you cannot even point to one single player, one single move, and say if things go in the ultimate right direction that this team could you know, maybe you know, exceed expectations. And that's my biggest issue. And hopefully within the next week or so where I think you know, Sandy Alderson is going to kind of look at what's left on the free agent market, maybe continue to talk, trade, and possibly make another addition or two. You know, whether it's an outfielder, maybe a reliever or two, and maybe give that fan like me, who always wants to look at the glass as being half full, the hope coming into this season. And that's something unfortunately we don't see right now. And that's one thing I wanna I wanna I want I wanna have. I'm going down to spring training the first week of March like I do every year. I wanna be able to have enough of a positive spin to say, Wow, look, the Mets added an outfielder, this guy is good. He could really help the team. Right now, I can't say that. Right now, they don't have an outfield. And, you know, I would expect to see some moves made between now and hopefully next week. Because as you get into February, I think you got to start realizing that things probably aren't happening. And I really think that, and then you look back at the history, particularly in the free agent era, that, you know, stuff that isn't done by the end of January usually doesn't get done. So I think you wanna if you wanna to say today, being January the twenty fourth, you know, gives the Mets a full week to show that they may or may not make any moves. If they haven't haven't even come close to agreeing with somebody in principle as far as a free agent or a trade, by the end of this month it's not happening. So I will I will be probably that one guy that's gonna be checking, you know, MLB trade rumors and hoping that something happens between now and then. 
And, and listen, I, I don't think I don't have my expectations out like I'm looking for something crazy. I, w- I wasn't really thinking that the Mets were going to be in it and you know acquire a Justin Upton. I didn't. I never thought they were going to sign Josh Hamilton. You know, a lot of a lot of fans you know have that kind of you know you know fanboy type of routine where they they want to get all the best players in the game and think that you know no matter what team that they're a fan of that these guys are just going to come up and be great and it's just it just doesn't work out that way and unfortunately with the Mets listen I'll, I'll settle for a couple fringe guys I'll settle for a couple guys that you could say all right they're major league outfielders because it's better than what they got right now and I don't think the fans of the New York Mets deserve to have to see the, the season go with the outfield of Lucas Duda Kirk Neuenheis and Mike Baxter they're all, they're all nice players, and I'm sure they're nice people, but they're not major league outfielders. And and you know I could I'll argue with you until I'm blue in the face. You know there's been nothing that either any one of these three players have shown that you could count on them over the course of a full 162 game season. Because I, I just don't see it. And you know prove me wrong. I mean the Mets go out with this outfield. And all of a sudden, you know, Kirk Newenheis, you know, is not. If you had some support, is Lucas Duda. But you also know that he can't catch a fly ball. So you throw that in there, and the Mets don't have a single outfielder. And I'm tired of saying this. I really am. It gets more and more tiring to just keep mentioning this. But a lot, lots of things I will definitely want to get to. Of course, the MLB Hall of Fame. You know, we talked about the vote a couple of years ago, but sadly this past week, uh, the Hall of Fame lost two of its living members. There's two less living members in the Hall of Fame with the passing of Earl Weaver and Stan Musial. And I'm definitely going to get into that in a little bit. I do want to talk about the Justin Upton uh, trade with the Atlanta Braves, which went official today. Upton is is now part of an outfield that has his brother and Jason Hayward. And honestly, I think the Diamondbacks kind of backed away and kind of found a need, a sense of urgency to move Justin Upton, which I, I honestly – did not think would happen up until now. But we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll get back a lot more in the Past Ball Show after this. Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. I think it's my opinion of it. I think it was put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the ring. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say, I would know, but I would say the reason why they wanted to ask is baseball going into the highly baseball sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And his team sucks. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, Look at this. Randy is out. And a team is mad. I don't want to get argued about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. You can run speeder than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. 
the team. Oh, yeah, welcome back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Networks, John Pielli, definitely uh, ready to get going, man. And uh, we're going to start out by talking about, you know, the sad news that happened in Major League Baseball. And, you know, it's so sad it really happened within about 24 hours of each other. You find out early early morning on uh, last Saturday of the passing of longtime Baltimore Orioles manager Earl Weaver. And, of course, you know, later on that day, you find out that Hall of Famer Stan Musial passes away in the same day. And, of course, the Baseball Hall of Fame losing two of its living members. As we talk about, you know, this being a year where there will be no players elected by the writers. A couple couple guys are going to be going in, you know, through other uh, shapes and forms. But, you know, you just talk about Stan Musial for a second. And he, he he's a guy that I've talked about before and I've given the props and the credit to for him being one of the top players ever to play this game and there was no question that uh, you know while he was alive and probably and, and I, I think it was without a doubt after the death of Ted Williams that he was the best living baseball player alive you know the be- and obviously I'm redundant by saying that but you know he was the best living baseball player and you know you could talk about Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and though they they are certainly up at the top and you can make a case that either one is the best baseball player that's living, you know, that was living then. I think Stan Musial had them both beat. The amount of hits that he got, the fact that he was just, you know, he he was he was an immortal. And you know, you could talk about Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, and sure they, sure they deserve the credit that they've done. I mean, they're all time greats. But Stan Musial is the best living player, you know, up until he passed away. And obviously, the torch will certainly be passed. Probably the Mays right now, who I think has the edge over Henry Aaron. But, you know, both of them, obviously, two of the greatest players ever played in this game. But Stan Musial, for everything he did, you know, uh, you know, serving the country during World War II and being a lifetime Cardinal, the face of the franchise, Stan the man. The guy was, you know, is 3,630 hits, a great, a legend, an icon. You know, a guy that you look from years and years and years, and you're just like, this is this is honestly one of the best players to ever play this game. And I talked about in one of my earlier shows that, you know, when we were talking about the greatest player to ever play in this game, I, I think you could get into a big discussion about it because it opens up so many different avenues, so many different players you could talk about. And mine really centered around three players. Of course, Babe Ruth. Ty Cobb, and the third, was, in my opinion, was Ted Williams. And, you know, we could have this discussion forever. Some people may think Barry Bonds belongs in the discussion. Some people may, may think that Mays and Aaron belong in the discussion. But when it comes to the top player, number one, without a doubt, I think it really only comes down to three. And I thought it came down to Cobb and Ruth and, of course, Ted Williams. But if you put Stan Musial's numbers up, against the greatest of all time and those are the three players that i just mentioned he matches up pretty well and you may say hey look at how many you know look at look at what henry aaron did and he 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 could be thought of as well you know some people may say a guy like josh gibson who didn't get a chance to play in the major leagues that he he deserves the you know to be thrown in a discussion but to me, the fourth guy, the tertiary guy, the guy that should be on the fringe of becoming one, of being one of the best, the greatest player to ever play the game, in my opinion, was Stan Musial. 
and baseball lost not only a gentleman but a you know very good man you know guy who served this country a guy who played his entire 22-year career with the st louis cardinals talk about the 3630 hits i mean the cardinals were you know had a chance to have that dynasty that they had winning all those world series championships in 42 44 and 46 and they would not have had a chance if it wasn't for what stan musial did and here's the guy that you know deserves more discussion than just a little piece on the past ball show and you know within the next couple of weeks i'm going to work on trying to get to uh, somebody that you know i had a very good chance to talk to him and we'll get some perspective on mr musial because he he deserves a credit and you know just a chance to see see this guy live until he's 92 i mean you know a lot of great players don't get to live that long but it's definitely sad to see him go and we'll get on you know now with earl weaver who was let's be honest if you put up the numbers you know as a manager i mean the guy didn't have a losing season if i'm not mistaken until the last last season that he managed when he came back for 85 and 86 i mean he took over the baltimore orioles probably at the right time but you know got the team to the world series in uh, 69 won it in 70 and got him back in 71 and you know yes he was he was blessed with having some really good players he was definitely blessed by having some good players but he he's a guy that really kind of revolutionized the whole the whole manager thing i mean there wasn't a guy that was as confrontational as serious as hard-nosed about what he did really since the days of john mcgraw i mean a lot of managers have just kind of been the guy that just sits on a bench and just kind of just is there you know yes he'll take some credit if the team does well but he'll be fired in a couple years if the team doesn't do well but Earl Weaver was a guy that went out there and he, he gave it his all. And you could tell, you know, that he wore his passion on his sleeve. Yes, he said a couple of things to umpires that maybe some of us shouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have said. But the guy was great. He was a solid manager, a guy who, you know, certainly is the greatest manager by a mile in the history of the Baltimore Orioles and certainly is, is to be spoken with the greats that ever managed in this game. But, you know, it's a sad, sad to see Earl Weaver go and obviously, you know, Stan Musial within the same day, which I think was, you know, kind of a sad note when you're talking about the history of Major League Baseball and you talk about fans like me and you and, you know, people who really love this game, you know, kind of missing, you know, two of the greats. Like I said, the Hall of Fame has two less members right now. And, you know, in a year where the, the baseball writers did not elect anybody, you know it's kind of sad, and I, you know I don't I don't really want to get into you know what what happened with the with the baseball writers, but you know listen, you know it's kind of sad that you know one week you have the writers inducting nobody, and then the following week you know the Hall of Fame loses two living members, and I think that's all that that just speaks to where where the game's going right now, and I don't know honestly I don't know where it's going to go, I really don't I don't know what's going to happen from now until the next, you know, five, ten years when we're talking about all the players that were implicated in steroids and all the writers that are going to just, you know, just kind of send in, some of them are going to send in blank uh, blank ballots. Others are going to just say, you know what, I'm not going to vote for anybody that played any era. You know, maybe some guys that are still, you know, lingering on the ballot from the previous generation may get a chance to get in. But let's be honest, I mean, the Hall of Fame, it could be a couple of years before anybody's inducted. And I don't think a lot of people really want to get into that. I don't think, you know, I think, you know, I think it's too sour of a note for people to want to talk about and say, you know, what what happens if, you know, 
you know, if, if this is the case, what happens if this is true? You know, what happens if next year goes by and Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox and Frank Thomas and everybody that's retained on the ballot is not inducted this coming, you know, next season? What happens if the writers bring in nobody again? Because if that happens once again, then I think it could be a sign of things to come. And, you know, I've, I've brought this thought up there, and I don't know what some of you think about it, but, you know, feel free to let me know. But the I, I think, honestly, with the baseball writers, a very good case could be that there's some collusion going on. You know, we talked about the collusion that happened in the, you know, the mid to late 80s with owners getting together saying we're not going to sign free agents and we're going to try to bring the amount of money the players make down and we're all going to talk together and, and, and do it. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's a shame how that happened and the players did get uh, compensated for it. And some players became free agents when they were on current deals of other contracts and stuff like that. But this is something that, you know, may not change for a while. And I think it's kind of sad when we're talking about the history of Major League Baseball. We're talking about an era that happened. We're talking about from 1990 to the current times where there's been baseball played. And there's been plenty of great moments which have happened. Whether people want to acknowledge them or not, they've happened. And I think that's something that really has to be looked at. Because people people want to say that because this is the steroids era, that none of these records should count or none of these numbers should count. But if, if that's true, then what the heck were we watching for the last 15-plus years? Or, you know, twenty over 20 years now we've been talking about the steroids era. You know, did Barry Bonds not hit as many home runs as he did? Did Roger Clemens not win as many games as he did? That all happened before our eyes. We saw that. As a, fan, as a baseball fan, we watched it happen. So whether whether Baseball Hall of Fame wants to acknowledge the players that were part of it, there pieces there's pieces of them in the Hall of Fame. I mean, when you talk about the bat that Roger Clemens threw at Mike Piazza in the, the 2000 World Series, that's in the Hall of Fame. And I think over time you'll realize that those two players belong in the Hall of Fame. Steroids or no steroids. And I don't want to set up the wild goose chase to say which players did and which players didn't. Listen, it existed. And obviously every player that was on the ballot this past season was penalized because of what happened with the steroids. You know, And some of the guys you look at, you say, wow, they probably never came close to a steroid in their life. But they were penalized just as much as all the immortal-type players, like the Bonds and the Clemens and all the other players that were linked, implicated, or maybe not even implicated with steroids. And I think that's something that really, you know, you have to look at and say, when are players going to get in? Or how about this? How many players are in the Hall of Fame right now that use steroids at some point in their life? I mean, Ferguson Jenkins went on the MLB Network and said that there's been discussion amongst Hall of Famers, amongst current Hall of Famers, that there is a player that they know of that's in the Hall of Fame right now that used steroids throughout his playing career. And honestly, if that's true, I think you open up the gates for everybody. You know, why why could one player, just because there wasn't enough ties, enough, you know, enough people got together to implicate this player in using steroids and they they quote unquote got away with it, then then why are you not letting anybody else in? And I think as time goes by, you're going to find out that there's probably more than one player 
that's in the Hall of Fame that used steroids at some point in their career. You know, I, I know everybody wants to trace the use of steroids from being in the late 80s, but <clears throat> let's be honest, they went around before that. They existed. So what's to say players that played in the late 70s didn't use them? I mean, there was no way to test. There was no way to prove it unless there's somebody that saw it firsthand. So that being said, I don't think you could really do anything about it. But I think that's something that really has to be thought about. And, you know, once you allow or once you have already allowed a player who has used steroids into the Baseball Hall of Fame, it's time to let them all in. It's time to look at the era and look at the players and what they accomplished. And the best players that played in the era belong in the Hall of Fame. And that's my opinion. But, you know, a lot of people say that, hey, steroids ruined the game. But you know what? You know what steroids ruined the game for the most? The other players that weren't using steroids. And because some of the players were the best in the game, others either never made it to the major leagues or were not able to compete with the level of the other guys because they were they, the other players were using steroids. So are we going to go full circle on this? Are we going to go to a point where we're going to talk about letting players in that had significantly lesser numbers just because we know that they didn't do steroids? See, that's what I disagree with. I don't think this should become a witch hunt of who did and who didn't use it. I really think it's time to just acknowledge the players for what they did and the time that they played. And anybody who has a set of eyes, anybody who saw the home run chase of 1998 between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, everybody that saw Barry Bonds pass Henry Aaron for the all-time home run lead, everybody saw what happened. And there's two separate things. While you saw what happened, you have enough of a mind to acknowledge the era and what was going on during the time. And all the comparison could be made of, you know, what about the players that played in the dead ball era? What about the players that didn't play with any integration? All of that being said, I think it's, you know, safe to say that you have to just look at the steroids era. And I, I think it may happen 20 years or 30 years or 40 years down the road. But this is going to be looked at as a time in baseball history. And just because steroids were involved that you know yes you could say everything bad you want about steroids and the era what these players did to themselves how they hurt the other players everything that you could possibly say but one thing you can't deny is the fact that it happened and it was part of the game and you and I as fans sat there and watched it and enjoyed it and you and you and and maybe you want to bring a bias in and say it was just Mark McGuire, or it was just this guy, or Raphael Palmero, or Barry Bonds, or whatever. But there's players on your favorite team that we're using, too. And you know what? If you were a baseball fan and rooted for your favorite team during that time, you were rooting for players that used steroids, too. So don't don't look at it, like being that guy on the couch sitting there saying that I had no part in this. Because you rooted for steroids just like I did, and just like everybody else did. And to me, you should feel just as ashamed as these players that were using steroids. And now, as a fan or a baseball writer, you got the gall, you got the nerve to go out there and say, well, they don't belong in a Hall of Fame. Who the hell are you to say that? 
And yes, maybe the Hall of Fame may acknowledge players for what they did over time and say this was the steroids era. But you can't take away what they did. We're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with a lot more going on with the Pass Ball Show after this. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to mtrradio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Welcome back, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Um, we're going to reach out to, uh, right now, Mark Grant, who is a former pitcher for the San Diego Padres, San Francisco Giants. Um, and it, just bear with me for a minute because I cannot multitask to save my freaking life. I mean, it's terrible if you ever watched me do it. I mean, you could tell when I'm doing more than one thing, when I'm talking and doing something. I do a terrible job at that. Hopefully... Excuse me. Hopefully, I'll be able to uh, to do it. But um, we're dialing in. We're going to try to get a hold of Mark Grant. Mark, over the course of his career, had a 22 and 32 record, a 4.31 ERA in 233 games. 200. Is this Mark Grant? This is. Hey, how you doing? It's John Pialli, Pass Ball Show on TR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes. Hi, man. John. Hi, John. How you doing? Hey, not too bad, man. It was just I was Good. just I was just checking it out, man. I realized you went to uh, the 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 Julie Juliet Catholic Academy, which happens. To... Uh, well, it's uh, it's Juliet Catholic Academy now because it's co-ed. I went to Juliet Catholic High School, which was all boys back in. Uh, it went co-ed like late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, yeah, and, and what I noticed that was kind of interesting is uh, that wasn't that the same high school that Bill Galgson went to? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, um, in fact, he graduated. Uh, he graduated when I was an incoming freshman. He graduated in 1977, and I was an incoming freshman in 1977. Bill's a good friend of mine. Oh, that's awesome. And Bill's actually going to be part of this show within the next hour, believe it or not. So I, 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 find, oh, okay. I, I find that putting it all together. I, th- I, thought it was, I thought it was a pretty good coincidence. Oh, cool. So you're out of Palmdale then? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, out of New Jersey. Oh, okay, because the Palmdale number showed up. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I think it was just the uh, the Skype number, and that's where it, where it ended up being. Oh, I got you. So am I coming through loud and clear then? Yes, you are. I sound great, man. Okay, cool. Hey, I tell, tell you, one of, the, one of the things, when I think of, you know, Mark Grant as a pitcher, and obviously, you know, you had, you had a very good career. As, as, a young, as a younger man, I saw, I saw you as a relief pitcher for the Padres. And one of the things that, that kind of intrigues me the most is you were part of that significant trade between the Giants and the Padres that sent Kevin Mitchell to the Giants and Mark Davis mm-hmm. to the Padres. And obviously the irony in that is in 1989, Mark Davis won the Cy Young, and Kevin yeah. Mitchell ended up winning the NL MVP. 
yeah, both teams really benefited from that trade. And uh, you know what was weird about that, John, was that uh, usually teams within the same division don't trade like that. And um, usually when a trade is made like that, it's usually in the other division because back then it was east and west. And, uh, you know, what we call it good scouting, good um, just, uh, you know, people doing their homework on players. Um, you know, when you get that many players in a deal, if, if you got one or two guys that really pan out, that's the one thing that um, that really benefited both teams. Mark Davis was unhittable that year, winning the Cy Young, 44 saves. And uh, Kevin Mitchell, of course, um, you know, the MVP with his numbers, uh, the bat, you know, which the Giants absolutely needed to go on to, you know, the to uh, division play. So it worked out for both clubs. No, it absolutely did. And I tell you, you know, you came through, you were a first-round draft pick, number 10 in, you know, in the nation in 1981 with the Giants. You, know, you end up making the major leagues. You know, you you started 25 games in you know in 1987 with the Giants and the and the Padres. Were you were you surprised when you when you were traded? Is, was that something that you expected? Um, I, I was surprised. In fact, before I got traded in, in 1987, um, I got prior to my trade, I got sent down to Phoenix uh, for a couple of weeks to, to our AAA club. And I remember I was talking to a teammate that he said he had talked to uh, his agent, and this agent was talking to some scouts that the Padres were looking at you know, possibly making a deal, and that my name was brought up. So it kind of sparked interest because I had never been traded before. I came up with the Giants. I was a homegrown Giant. I wanted to be with the Giants for a long time. So then I got recalled back to the big leagues, made a start, and then all of a sudden we were in Chicago, got traded. Uh, I got word uh, that I got traded and then met the team in Chicago. So disappointed uh, I was kind of but then again on the other hand the Padres needed pitching it was a great opportunity the, the Giants were uh, I don't want to say loaded with pitching but they had veteran pitchers that they wanted to go with the rest of the year so it gave me a chance to establish myself and um, uh, it didn't really work out as a starter but then I moved to the bullpen and kind of kind of worked out for me so it was great and now I make my home here in San Diego which is great <laughs> now that's good to hear man now you know, as you move forward, you know, you were with the Padres in 88 and, you know, really 89. I think you really had a had a breakout season as a reliever. You went 8-2. Mm -hmm. You know, I pitched a lot of innings that, that year, too, which I, I, I thought was pretty interesting. You look at the way, you know, pitching has changed now. Nowadays, you know, you don't see relievers, you know, pitching 50 games and pitch over right. 100 innings anymore. So, you know. No, it's uh... – yeah, you're right. It's more specialized. You know, you've got your your middleman. You've got your seventh inning guy, your eighth inning guy. Back when Jack McKean was managing, uh, that's the year Jack was there in San Diego. Um, he was one of those managers that if you had the hot hand, he would go with you. And, uh, you know, it was me, uh, Calvin Trawley, Greg Booker, uh, Dave Leeper. Uh, of course, uh, Mark Davis finished it off. But uh, um, it was a lot of, uh, you know, starters going deep into the game. And, um and, and our relievers really doing a good job to put us in a little bit of a race with the Giants towards the last week of the season. Yeah, absolutely, man. And of course, you know the Giants end up going, uh, you know, going all the way to the World Series that season. Um, you know, after that, you ended up uh, playing with a couple different teams from Atlanta to Seattle, Houston, and then Colorado. Tell us a little bit about your career after after the Padres and how you know how things ended up going for you. Well, you know, in anybody's plan, I guess, if, if, if you were to map out what your career uh, would hope to be like. You know, I wanted to be with a, a club for a long time. Uh, you know, if I could have been with the Giants for the, my whole career, but that just doesn't happen uh, this day and age. Uh, if I could have, you know, finished up with the Padres for a long time, that would have been great. But uh, it, it took me to different uh, ball clubs, uh, different paths, and injuries kind of had a play as I got 
into my 30s. And, uh, you know, a short time in Houston, then went to Colorado, got hurt, and then, you know, tried to rehab, come back, played the minor leagues, and, and still trying to chase the dream. But I got to the point where I was you know, relatively still young when I, when I uh, retired because I was only 31. Uh, I just didn't want to go through the, uh, the um, grind of having another surgery, would have been my third, having a rehab, and by that time would have been 32, 33 years old. And I don't know, you know, who would have really um, trying to go in after and signed a, a free agent, 33-year-old right-hand pitcher. So I decided to, um, you know, uh, take a different route, and that's when I got into broadcasting, did a little radio, did a little TV, and, and that's where I find myself today. So, uh, you know, looking back at it, I guess it was a, it was a good choice because uh, been here in San Diego next year will be my 18th year doing Padre baseball on TV, and it's a great gig. Yeah, absolutely, man. And once again, this is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Mark Grant. It, it kind of gets me to what what uh, was going to be my next point. You know, the 1995 season that you had with Iowa, which is the AAA mm-hmm. affiliate of the Chicago Cubs, you ended up pitching very well. And I guess what happened, you, yeah. ended, you ended up getting hurt. And I guess rather than face the uh, you know the uh, you know the recovery and a rehab for you know another operation, you ended up deciding to hang it up. Yeah, and you know what, John, that was kind of uh, my last hurrah, my last gig at trying to make it to the big leagues because growing up in Chicago. Uh, or a suburb of Chicago, I, the Cubs were my team, you know, growing up. They were the team that I loved. You know, I still love the Cubs. Uh, it's in your blood as a kid. You might go on and, and live in different areas or work for ball clubs, but everybody has that special team in their heart that they grew up watching, and, and mine was the Cubs. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to give it one more go around, I want to sign with a team that I grew up uh, and loved. And it was during the um, – it was during 95. Remember, they had the lockout that year. And the players were uh, not in camp, so they were going replacement players. I got tons of calls from teams saying, "Hey, we need players. We need replacement players." I said, "Hey, I said I'm not going to I'm not going to cross the picket line. You know, I, I played this game a long time. Uh, I made a lot of friends. Uh, the game of baseball has done a, a lot for me. I'm not going to I'm not going to cross the picket line, but I will come to camp and try to make the Triple A team." Well, the Cubs agreed. Jim Riggleman and um, was the manager at the time, and. Jim Henry was the general manager, and they said they totally understand. And I said, yes, I can come and compete, try to make the Des Moines team. You know, uh, if you could have me, that'd be great. But I will not pitch in the replacement games. And uh, they totally understood. So that's that's what happened. I went to spring training, they did the, the Iowa team, and uh, they angered things out. And, you know, what? I was, I was pitching well early in the season, John, but then I ran into some arm troubles, and they didn't need pitching at the big league level. So it was kind of tough not being able to fulfill that dream, not only pitching as a big leaguer in a big league uniform, but pitching for the Cubs. It just didn't come to fruition. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell, I'll tell you, man, I just want to ask you, was there any urges in the deepest part of your mind that you really, did you ever even consider it remotely of possibly crossing the picket line at that point? Or, no. or were you no. years hell-bent against just not doing it? Yeah, not at all. And you know what? I'm not one to judge somebody who did because that's not my style. I know everybody has different reasons for doing what they do uh, and the decisions that they make. So I'm not going to judge somebody for doing that. Uh, but I had it set in my mind, you know, there was no way I was going to do that. I just, you know, I was just uh, a firm believer in what uh, what the, the union was trying to do, uh, trying to make it better for the next class of, of uh, big leaguers that were coming up and uh, for what they did for me when I was coming up in the big leagues. And, um, it was just, uh, you know, was it a sacrifice? I don't even think it was a sacrifice because I knew in my heart all along that I would never do that. 
So, uh, you know, though it all worked out, I got a chance to wear the Cub uniform, so be it in, in AAA with uh, the Iowa Cubs. But uh, it was fun while it lasted, and uh, it, was a, it was a good experience. Hey, no question about it, man. Now, listen, Mark, I want to thank you for having some time. I really appreciate you being part of the show. And, of course, all the listeners can definitely check out Mark. And what, what do you do? You do uh, the radio broadcast for the Padres, right? Uh, actually, I'm on TV. Oh, you're on TV. With, okay. uh, Fox, uh, yeah, Fox Sports San Diego here uh, in San Diego. Last year was the first year for Fox Sports San Diego. We televise every game. Uh, I work alongside play-by-play guy legend Dick Enberg. And um, it's uh, always sunny and uh, – <laughs> And uh, fun out here in San Diego, so we got a great ballpark, and uh, hopefully for good things in the future with the Padres. All right, one quick question, man. What do you what do you think about the Padres going into the season? Well, you know, I think it's going to be a, a trying year once again. Um, they're really banking on some of the youngsters that they have in their organization, some top prospects. Uh, of course, Chase Headley had a, a banner year last year, leading the league in uh, RBIs. But, uh, you know, Volquez, Edmondson Volquez, Clayton Richard, Jason Marquis, the top three in the rotation. And, and they've got a solid bullpen. So if they can maintain a solid rotation uh, with the, the arms that they have in the bullpen uh, and score a couple runs, I'm not saying they're going to win a pennant, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, I say they, uh, they can compete in the National League West because the Giants are always tough. You know that, John, and also the Dodgers. Those are the clubs that always can uh, be willing to make a move at the deadline to make their club better. So they're going to have to get off to a good start. Yeah, and I'll tell you, one thing that stood out for me is the way they finished last year. I think, you know, they had a very strong finish. They ended up, uh, you know, winning games, you know, throughout, you know, August and September and kind of made up some ground yep. as far as, you know, they came into the season kind of being one of the, the uh, least interesting teams in Major League Baseball as far as talent and, you know, partially because of their pitching and Chase Headley they ended up kind of making some progress. So hopefully that they're able yeah. to kind of take a step forward and maybe take the next step in 2013. Yeah, they did. I mean, last year, if you look early in the season, they opened the season, the Padres did 1-9, and nine, and that really hurt them. Because towards the month of September, uh, if you were to take the first 10 games away from the Padres, the Padres were actually a half a game above the Dodgers in the standings. The Dodgers started 8-2. and two, the, the Padres started one and nine, and that was the big difference. And they just couldn't dig out of that hole. So, it's a big key for them to get off to a good start. No, absolutely, man. Listen, Mark, I want to thank you once again. Um, hopefully, I could have you on the show sometime in the near future. All right, John. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime, man. Take care. Yeah, that was Mark Grant, former Major League pitcher with the Giants, Padres, Braves, Mariners, Astros, and Rockies, and of course, he pitched from 1984 to 1993. Um, he had a very good career, mostly as a reliever, but he did start a significant amount of time, pitched a lot of innings. And, of course, you hear, you know, the sad thing that you hear a lot about a lot of pitchers as they get towards the end of their career, particularly a guy like Mark Grant who ends up, you know, retiring at age 31 and last pitching in the major leagues when he's 29. You know, you see, you try to figure out how many different arm injuries you're able to, um, you know, get over. And if you looked at Mark Grant's numbers in – 1995 with the Iowa Cubs, he was five and two with a 3.13 ERA and 11 starts. And I understand he's pitching a AAA, but just remember at the time, you know, that he was going against players that were considering, you know, uh, you, know t- you know, crossing the picket lines to uh, to play as replacement players. So rather than do that, he chose to pitch in the minor leagues, which he was still protected by Baseball Union. And you know, he pitched very well. And, you know, it's a shame that he didn't get that one last chance to kind of just, you know, air it out in the major leagues. And perhaps if there's no strike at that time, 
You know, we talk about all the different things that the strike from 2004 into 2000, I'm sorry, 1994 into 1995 did to a lot of the players that played at that time. You know, it obviously ruined careers. You know, and a guy like Mark Grant may have gotten a chance to pitch in the major leagues again. And, you know, if he's, if he's pitching in the majors in, in 1995, then perhaps he sticks around for a little longer. He says, all right, I'll have this operation and I'll be back in, you know, 1996 or 1997. And it's unfortunate it didn't work out that way, but Mark obviously has a very good secondary career. He's a play-by-play guy on TV in San Diego with the great Dick, Dick Emberg. And, you know, if there's a guy that you want to, you know, be alongside, it's definitely Dick Emberg, who's certainly one of the, one of the best, uh, you know, one of the greater broadcasters that ever existed and really one of the more underrated guys. You know, a guy like Dick Emberg doesn't get a lot of credit because people talk about, you know, the Scullies and the Calluses and, you know, of course, uh, you know, a lot of the greats that ever, you know, held themselves to one team. You know, Dick Emberg was more of a national guy. And, of course, all, all, all the days he was on the national networks, you know, he, you know, it shouldn't be held against him. I mean, he is a very good play-by-play guy. He's a very good, um, he's a very good uh, analyst. And he deserves, he deserves to be put up there with some of the best. But uh, once again, past ball show, John Pielli, right here on EMTR Radio Network. We got about eight minutes or so. What we're going to do right now is get into uh, what happened today with the Atlanta Braves and the Arizona Diamondbacks. A huge, huge deal that ends up happening involving Justin Upton. And Justin Upton, rumored for months to be traded, finally gets, gets uh, I don't know if it's his wish or more of uh, Kevin Tower's wish to see him traded and of course a couple weeks ago he was rumored to be going to the Seattle Mariners only to reject the trade it being one of the only one of the only teams that he did not want to be traded to but they finally agree and Justin Upton gets Justin Upton gets to play with his brother BJ in the Atlanta Braves outfield with Jason Hayward probably forming one of the better outfields in all of Major League Baseball but I will mention this that if the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim decide to go with the, uh, uh, you know, the outfield of Josh Hamilton, Mike Trout, and Mark Trumbo. That's a pretty hard one to top. And, of course, you got the Dodgers with a, a healthy Carl Crawford with Matt Kemp and Andre Ethier. And I'm sure you could think of other ones that compete with what the Atlanta Braves are going to be putting out there. The Washington Nationals aren't too shabby with Bryce Harper and Jason Wirth and, and Denard Spann. Obviously at a different level, a lower level. It's not up there with what the Braves have. But the Braves, from their own perspective, did a phenomenal job here. They waited this thing out. They waited for the right time to pounce. I think solely in my own mind that Kevin Towers got to a point where he realized that he had a deal up in. No more of the rumors. You can't have a guy that's on the trading block for this long and have this much discussion, have it be this serious of an issue that they're looking to trade somebody and not actually do it. And that's when some teams that end up making trades like this for players like this end up benefiting a lot. And I think the Braves definitely did. They gave up a guy in Martin Prado who is a very good outfielder, third baseman, probably will be playing third base every day for the Arizona Diamondbacks. But I'll tell you, they didn't give up enough, in my opinion, to cover what Justin Upton can bring to the table. Justin Upton, as, as early as a year ago, coming into the 2012 season, was one of the top players in the game. And if I had to say he was probably a top 10 player, maybe not you know not quite top 5, but a top 10 player, 
as far as his ability to, you know, pretty much do every one of those last five tools. And, you know, that being said, I think that it's something that has to be, uh, you know, thought about. The Braves added a top player, you know, to add to their lineup that already has Freddie Freeman and B.J. Upton and Brian McCann and Jason Hayward and Dan Ogla. You add this one more bat, I think the Braves' offense, one through eight, has got to be up there with the best lineups in the National League. So great job by the Atlanta Braves. I talked about it a little bit on Wire for Sports before, that I really do think that this trade puts the Braves up where they can not only compete with the Washington Nationals, but they can overtake them. They can absolutely overtake them. And it would not surprise me if the Braves won the National League East Division this year. I know everybody is so caught up on the Washington Nationals. They become America's team. Everybody says, all right, oh, look at all these young players with Strasburg and Harper, and they traded for Denard Spann, they signed Dan Harron and Raphael Soriano, and they brought back Adam LaRoche, and they still got Ryan Zimmerman, and all this stuff that you want to say about the Washington Nationals. It doesn't always work out that way. And I'm not going to say I'm going to be shocked if the Washington Nationals win the National League East, but I think that they're going to face some stiff competition this year, not only with the Braves but the Philadelphia Phillies. The Phillies still have those three solid aces, you know, in Hamels and Halliday and Lee. And they've made some minor moves, maybe maybe to minor to major moves to try to upgrade their offense. Obviously, signing Mike Adams to the bullpen was a very good move, and I don't think the Phillies are going away. I could see it being a very strong three-team race, but in the end, I think the team that has the ability to win this whole division is the Atlanta Braves right now. I think the Atlanta Braves, you know, bring back a very solid starting rotation led by Chris Medlin and Tim Hudson. Of course, they got Brandon Beachy coming back off of his injury. And, you know, Mike Miner, I think they, they, they're going to be fine. I think this is a team that's going to be all right. They got enough starting pitching. You know, they got a, a, an improved bullpen, which I don't think you could imagine as a bullpen as good as it was last year getting better. But Jordan Walden sliding in and pitching that eighth inning for the Atlanta Braves is going to be phenomenal for them. Craig Kimbrell is the best closer in the game. They got Johnny Venters and Eric O'Flaherty, who are two of the best setup men in the game, and they both throw from the left side. And you throw Jordan Walden in there, it becomes a six-inning game very quick with the Atlanta Braves. And if the starting pitching is anywhere good as I think it will be, they're going to win a lot of games. And, you know, we've, we've talked about before how the three teams, you know, the Braves, the Nationals, and the Phillies should be able to feed on the New York Mets and the Miami Marlins. And that being said, I think it's going to be a race. But if I had to pick a winner of the National League Eastern Division right now, and, you know, I'm going to do this whole thing with my blog and everything. We're going to go over every team. We're going to do the 30-to-1 MLB countdown in inverse order of best teams in all of baseball, I'm picking the Atlanta Braves to win the National League East. And this is something that they did a whole lot of since the team since the, the team split into three divisions. They won the National League East every year. It existed in the three team divisions until the you know until two thousand six when the Mets won the division. And I think they'll be back representing the National League East in the two thousand thirteen postseason. 
So we're going to break for our first hour. I uh, do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Definitely thanks to Mark Grant. You know, great spot. Um, definitely a lot going on with the past ball show. We're going to take our five-minute break. We'll be back with a little bit more after this. Past ball show brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight of this group. Six to one to the ring. For the Indians. One run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history. I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to ask you baseball going into the baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak from any other sport. Let me start by telling you this I have never used steroids, period. Jerry?